Welcome to the American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. On April 22, 1519, Hernan Cortez and his army landed on the Yucatan Peninsula. With that army came 16 horses, and with the subsequent Aztec conquest, the horse returned to mainland North America. April 22, 1519 marks the 500th anniversary of the horse's reintroduction to mainland North America. Previously, the ancestral horse had been wiped out thousands of years ago. To commemorate this anniversary, we have this three-part podcast series with Dr. Deb Bennett, who is a leading authority on the horse's migration in North America and equine anatomy. With this third and final installment of the series, Dr. Bennett will discuss how the horse continued to spread through North America through breeding and other landings. She'll also circle back to a theory on why the previous equids disappeared from North America. But first, we'll hear from our sponsor, Castle Plastics. Castle Plastics is a fifth-generation family-owned and operated injection molding manufacturing business. The year 2020 marks the celebration of our 100th anniversary. For over 30 years now, we have dedicated our production capabilities to the equine industry with our vast assortment of superior hoof pads. We take pride in both the innovation and quality of all the products that we have developed and introduced to the market over the years, as well as the fact that each and every item that leaves our facility is manufactured in-house in the USA. Castle pads currently are used globally by the majority of all hoof care professionals. Contact us at 1-800-9-CASTLE or visit us online at castleplastics.com for product and supplier information. continental North America, a firm hold compared to what happened in Panama. By the time they're going north from Sonora, it's a whole, it's a whole other century. So you're, you're looking at the 1600s. So you're going to get Juan de Oñate, who's the guy that founds the colony at Santa Fe. Before him, you get, you get Coronado and the Coronado going up to look for Quivira and the city and El Dorado and finding nothing more exciting than the, than the Hopi Pueblos <laughs> and Zuni Pueblos. Who did I mean, that was a sad, sad story. Poor boy. <laughs> he was disappointed because there were no cities of gold, of course, and the Indians by then were savvy to these, how stupid and greedy some of these guys were. So to get rid of them, the people of the Pueblos had a, a conference with them and they said, look, you know, we, we can't give you any gold. We don't have any gold. We, we, we grow corn. That's what we do here. But, uh, but we know from our ancient <laughs> lore that there is the city way to the northeast <laughs> that is called Quivira, which, of course, that's where Quivira is. You know, there's a town in Missouri or Kansas, near Kansas City, that's called Quivira. And that's because they think that that is indeed where Cortez's men finally gave up. <laughs> and they think maybe Cortez's men got as far as the headwaters of the Missouri, even. They really went far up there, because he got up there as far as Wichita and decided to split up. So they split into parties of three or four, because he's running out of resources, and he's not finding what he's looking for. So Coronado set out in the most golden of conquerors in the most magnificent send-off parade you could possibly imagine wearing golden armor and a, with a huge well-funded expedition 
and comes back a penniless cripple, having found nothing. The nothing that he wanted. He found a lot of stuff that, that we might want. Right. <laughs> but he didn't find any gold <laughs> or any Indians that were mining any. So he's before Sam Feng. But when Onyade comes up, Onyade is a rotten administrator. Terrible, slack, incompetent, and also greedy and stupid. They lose horses left and right. Coronado didn't lose a single horse. They, they ate them. But, but they didn't let them get loose. If they were starving, they'd kill them and eat them. But they didn't let them get loose. But Onyate, who had was even more well-funded, he had lots of livestock of all classes, uh, just schlepped it about. I mean, his men traded horses to Indians so they could have women. They would trade horses for wives or concubines. And they would they would uh, carelessly just simply fall asleep on guard duty, and the horse would get loose, they get off the picket line and leave. And this this begins the huge uh, population explosion in in the what is now the U.S. of mustangs that went all the way to northern Canada up the Great Plains. Because why? That was the original niche or ecological zone that the horse had inhabited before uh, people who came over the Beringian Strait extinguished them, before the Clovis people killed them all. That's why, that's why they went extinct here, because a European uh, culture, which specialized in killing horses and, and mammoths, came over the Bering Strait and found this whole continent full of horses and mammoths. <laughs> and, they, and they just killed every single one of them. And that, that's, that's uh, the, the best data we have seems to indicate that. Now, you could also say that it's because as the population size got smaller, it became unstable, and there's been other theories about that. But uh, it does seem that the earliest Native Americans, the earliest, I should say, acknowledged Native Americans, because, of course, there were almost certainly people here before the Clovis level. There were almost certainly people here much earlier than that, but that is not received opinion of many archaeologists in North America. So according to standard theory, the Clovis people are the earliest people to get here, and, but, and whether or not they are totally responsible for the extinction of the horse, they are certainly responsible for a lot of, a lot of it, because they, they certainly did hunt horses. You, you realize that among European uh, people, there was a huge number of tribes in the in the you know the the early Holocene and the late Pleistocene that specialized in killing horses. That's what horses were to people, mainly food, and that that, that they were not ridden for thousands and thousands. It didn't even occur to people mm. that you could do anything else with them. So they, but they were certainly horse hunters. And that's, so when they, these are the people who come over the Bering Straits 10,000 years ago and go to work on our native fauna, extinguishing the horse temporarily until their descendants bring them back. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll get back to the 1500s. So before, uh, you know, Sonora, uh, we have Cortez capturing Mexico City in 1521. 
And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Mexico City is, is, you know, sort of south central parallel to the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, yeah. You know, it's quite a ways till that 100 years uh, till they get to Sonora. What what's the the country like? Is it mainly cattle country? What was it like yeah, in yeah. your book? You talk about ranching. Like, absolutely, the whole area. And, of course, it gets more desertic as you go north. I mean, far northern Mexico is pretty dry. But the horses uh, get along with that. And notice that you are rising in latitude. And they can, they can also live in the foothill country, of the southern Rocky chain. And so it's pretty good horse country. And the horses, from day one in Mexico City, as soon as the conquest was a done deal, and the, the the Spanish started dividing up the land and and allotting you know this tribe will be slaves to this uh, landowner and this tribe will be slaves to that landowner and they get the country arranged according to their tastes and needs and they begin exploiting it for all it's worth for all the productivity it can give not just in gold but in agricultural products particularly cattle which were raised in Mexico mostly for the hides. So the leather trade was a big early uh, industry. And uh, hence we get the traditions of all this stuff that's made out of leather. Because once upon a time, that was uh, a very common commodity. Because, uh, you know, you must have seen Spanish type cattle, or what are called mm-hmm. Spanish cattle, Criollo cattle. They're, they're a lot more rangy and bony looking than your average white-faced shorthorn, right? That's a meat, mm-hmm. those shorthorns are meat cattle or Anguses. Now that's, that's English cattle or Dutch cattle, but it's, uh, the Spanish cattle are all rangy, uh, you know, longhorns and, and semi-longhorns stuff that the ropers love to get today because they got enough horn to hook something on. <laughs> and because they're kind of a fast, they can run kind of fast. But that's the sort of cattle that was the, almost all that was raised by the Spanish. They didn't raise any white, any Herefords or any Anguses. So this is what the vaqueros were out there doing. And they did it with the 60-foot braided riata and not with a short lasso. And they dallied to a great big thick horn. I mean, this is essentially identical to what you would see Ray Hunt or Buck Braneman do as as good sons of the back of the Montana Buckaroo tradition. I mean, that's just the the uh, the, the uh, white culture's uh, take on this older Mexican style and everything about training a horse in a bozal too. I should mention, and then in that time in Florida. In the 1530s, where you then had the horse arrive, and finally in yes, the U.S. I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. That Mexico is not the only point of entry of horses, because you get good old DeSoto, <laughs> who has been called the noblest heart in the conquest, because he was actually a nobleman, which most of these guys weren't. And you might want to ask yourself why that is. Why, why did not? Why didn't the king himself come over here? Well, because he's already busy. <laughs> he's already got an investment in doing what he does, and he ain't going to leave Europe. And neither are the the older sons of the noble households, because they know that they're entitled. 
the the oldest son typically would inherit his father's uh, title and money and land, but the younger sons needed some place to go, and they would come to the new world, and the sons of lesser of men of lesser social standing, in hopes of, and really not so much the merchant class, but the lower classes. That's the soldiery. But why do they come? In hopes of raising their, getting out of the uh, the the, uh, the the social hierarchy that was uh, pretty much fixed in Europe. So you get, you know, very few actual noblemen. But De Soto was a romantic. You can almost think of him as a sort of Don Quixote uh, figure, and because he is cultured, he's honest, he has class, he knows how to train a horse. So uh, Cortez had a lieutenant named Pedro de Alvarado who was a top-class horseman as well. So that, one of the questions I often, this will apply to De Soto as well, but one of the questions I often pose to students and audiences, because actually I'm giving them a bit of a, I'm chiding them, because Americans are not known for their grasp of geography or of history or of foreign languages. In fact, many Americans are suspicious of that if you taught your kids bilingually, there's something weird about you or un-American. And this is a terrible attitude. We live in a world of many cultures, and if you make no effort to understand the other guy, you're going to lose on every level. That's what education means, so that you don't lose. So when uh, I speak to these audiences, I will often ask them, so um, half of you people are like telling me that you're into dressage, right? And I get a whole bunch of hands raised. Yeah, yeah, we like, we like dressage. We like the Olympics. I say, good. So tell me when the first dressage upper-level ride that incorporated upper-level maneuvers was performed in North America. And they'll guess, they'll guess Ann Gribbons in 1974, they'll guess Hilda Gurney, <laughs> or something with the California Dressage Society, um, if, if, if they even know that much. And that would date to perhaps the 1950s. Right. The first exhibition of record, and there were probably earlier ones in the Caribbean, of which we have no, we don't know the person's name. But we do know the name of Pedro de Alvarado, who for purposes of impressing the Aztecs, that was prearranged by, by Cortez as a kind of a demonstration of power, occurred on the beach at Veracruz in 1519. And Pedro de Alvarado demonstrated all the same maneuvers that we get in a modern by, made by the greatest horseman of our time. The greatest rider of our time is, Angel, is an individual named Angel Peralta, who is the older of the two Peralta brothers, who are the saviors of mounted bullfighting. These guys are so good that it brings tears to your eyes. And even if you don't approve of uh, pricking cattle, 
or taurine cattle. And I, leave, I, I give everybody the right to their opinion on that aspect, but you cannot ignore how beautiful those horses are and how incredibly responsive and how perfectly trained they are. These guys are so good that they are out of this world. But this is the tradition in Spain. And Pedro de Alvarado represents that tradition. So he rides on the beach, and what does he do? He does all the same things they do in a bullfight, which are all the maneuvers we see in modern competitive dressage, except that modern competitive dressage is a stripped-down and simplified version of the actual original forms. So what Alvarado would have been doing is not, you know, not just slide stops, which he certainly would do, but and not just pirouettes, but metzer, tear a tear. These are maneuvers that were carried on by the so-called masters of European high school horsemanship in the 18th century, but which are not included in the, because nobody can do them. And they, they don't exhibit airs above the ground. So even the Spanish riding school, which does exhibit airs above the ground today, does not exhibit all that there used to be. However, Mr. Peralta does. And there are videotapes, you wanna go watch him? Look him up on YouTube. There are in, in, in him and his younger brother uh, Raphael. It, it's like <laughs> there's lots of pictures of mounted bullfighting on YouTube, and a lot of those guys are quite good. I mean, I I appreciate them, but none of them can touch these two guys. And not only that, these two guys were their teachers in almost every case. The only other guy that's in their league is Domek. So what? How far back does high does high level riding go, or an understanding of how to produce and maintain high collection in a horse? In how far back does that go in North America? Right back to the Mexican conquest, and probably goes back to the initial arrival or colonization of Hispaniola, because certainly there are records of parades that were held as, which they always did as a send-off fiesta before they would go out on their boats or take go out on an expedition. So almost certainly the horse, you would have seen a horse passage mm -hmm. in those parades, because absolutely they do that in the bullfight all the time. And Piaf as well, they knew all about it. So do you realize that in the first, when dressage was made into a competition. It is not in its origin a form of competition. And so much so that I refuse usually, I'm doing this for you as a courtesy so that it won't be confusing, but normally I refuse to use the word dressage to describe what these older guys were doing. I use the word classical high school instead because Dressage, I reserve the term dressage for the, for the actual competition, which begins no earlier than 1914, and was, uh, because to have a competition, don't you have to have a, a rule book? And that's when the rule book was published for the first time. It was written by German and Prussian army officers and submitted to the first modern Olympic committee 
as because every country from day one has had the right every Olympiad to submit two sports to their own advantage, two sports that they that they do in their country that they figure they can meddle in. So, and that's just part of the strategy of fixing up the Olympic Games. That's a German sport, and, and it has no no earlier history, and is not like it does not share the same value system or many of even the same physical forms and certainly does not share the training protocols of the older classical high school. Now, did Diaz document that, the military yeah. prowess? Yeah, and, and others. But yes, that's in Diaz's book. Because certainly it was a big day because they were going to do this this thing to try to scare the Aztecs, and so they turned off. They turned uh, Pedro de Alvaro loose on the beach in the wet sand, because you don't want to ride your horse in the dry sand. You know this, of course, because I assume you've ridden the horse on a beach, but you you try to stay out of the dry sand because it's too damn deep. Yeah. But you get up there in the soil where it's damp, and that's a pretty good ride. So they turned him loose, and they, they, the whole purpose was uh, to scare the Aztecs. So you, know, you see Cortez used every means at his disposal to bamboozle, uh, you know, psych them out, I, I guess we would say today. And that because that, but that's what it's all about. It's about power and who's going to be in power, who's going to own the land, and who's going to get the gold. That's what it's all about. Yeah. So... And it was that for him on capturing the other ships and then capturing Mexico City. Right. But to go back to your other point, Florida was the other point of entry for Spanish horses of Iberian extraction. So in with the DeSoto comes horses, and the fate of those horses is kind of interesting because some of them probably did survive to, to breed on. And... Um, there's a there is there is some likelihood of this because um, they did manage to get across the Gulf Coast pretty far before before they got sick and died. And on the way across, it is known, it is recorded that they traded horses to some of the chiefs. And although the chiefs often did not know what to do with them and did not understand how to feed them, so that sometimes they would die in the Indians' care because they would try to feed them. They would think they were gods and try to feed them flowers, you know. So you, your horse is not going to live that long <laughs> in the hands of somebody that doesn't really understand husbandry. Right. But it's possible, at least, that some of those original horses have did manage to contribute to what is definitely a Spanish-based Criollo horse population that it that is in existence in Florida today, like the Florida Cracker, and some of the uh, horses that are in like rural Alabama, backcountry Mississippi, and so forth. And certainly, I mean, horses continued to come into St. Augustine and other ports in the Caribbean all through the Pirates of the Caribbean era. Uh, in other words, through the 18th or the 17th century. So you get many shipwrecks, which allowed horses to swim across and get onto the barrier islands. And so they, they are there, 
and the the, the the bank that's what we call banker ponies. Banker ponies are a mixture of English hobby and shipwrecked Spanish. The original hobby was bred by the Irish kings, primarily for purposes of racing, and they became very famous for having short speed and were traded from Ireland to the Romans. Many of the horses that performed in the Roman Colosseum, like think Ben-Hur, were hobbies. The hobby is the most important of all horse breeds because it is the mare bloodline of the thoroughbred, the quarter horse, the Morgan, the American saddlebred, the American standard bred, and some minor breeds such as I, I uh, until recently owned a gelding that was a Rocky Mountain horse, and they also definitely hark back to hobby. So hobby is the source of two things, ambling gait and short speed. How many ambling thoroughbreds have you met? I don't think you've met very many, and that's because the, amb- the tendency to amble has been br- largely bred out of those breeds, but once upon a time, it was normal for thoroughbreds to amble. And this, this is the type of thoroughbred that did that is the ancestor of the saddlebred. Aha. Mm. Uh, yeah, so there is more than meets the eye there, Horatio. The hobby story is the other story, you see. So whereas we've been talking about the Mustangs and the Baguales and the and the Criollo horses. These are horses of Iberian extraction, and they come to us with the first conquest and colonization from Europe to the New World. But there was a second wave, which entered North America from in Montreal and in Plymouth Rock and in Virginia. The Jamestown, and later in Pennsylvania, and New York, and Delaware, and Rhode Island, and Maryland, all that stuff, that's English, Dutch, and French. And almost all of the early importations to all of them, other than Dutch, so English, French, were were hobby or hobby-related. And this is, the, the whole story of that is what I call Hobbes' children. All of our Anglo and Franco-American breeds are Hobbes children. And that's different than the Spanish stuff. So, if you look in Equus Magazine, about, uh, I think it's like four months ago, uh, we did an article uh, on the Cayuse, mm-hmm. on what, it, what is the Cayuse, and wh- when did cowboys actually start riding quarter horses? Not very early. <laughs> there, was, there wasn't any such thing for a long time as such, named as such. And of course, everybody knows that quarter horses have a certain strain of of Iberian blood in them because, putatively, that's where they get their cow sense. So there was some interbreeding. But what I do in that that particular article is I present the maps that show this same thing you've been asking me about, about the spread of horses from Santa Fe but also the spread from St. Augustine, and the spread from Montreal City, and the spread from the East Coast, the 13 colonies. 
because all of them are what make our unique American blend. We, you know, a lot of Europeans have a hell of a time telling, they're always mixing up standard breads and saddle breads. And because, and Morgans, they can, they, and quarter horses, they can't tell one from the other, which to our eyes is like obvious. You would never mistake a, a, a Morgan, at least the classic. I'm not talking about the modern show Morgan, that's, that's a ball of wax, but, but the real Morgan. You would never, anybody that knows anything about American horses would be able to identify Morgan as a Morgan at a glance and would never mix it up with a thoroughbred or a quarter horse until you get up to quarter horses that are 99.99% thoroughbred <laughs> and then you can't tell them apart anymore. But but I remember when you could before, you know, before Sam Pepe sat and before people started teasing the quarter horse guys about that they need to go get a ladder. <laughs> so, but the point is, Hobbs children, the English the Anglo and Franco American breeding and the Iberian breeding are the two great root sources of where we get our genetics or where we get our bloodlines for the creation of the breeds which are classically and typically American. Yeah. All right, so let's look at uh, um, let's look at the United States and you know you talked about the point of entry uh, in in Florida. What made Santa Fe in, in the 1600s that, you know, that center for, for I guess, the emerging that's horse just, population? That's, that's, that's where Juan de Oñate could take over a Pueblo. Okay. That they, they went to Atacama, and they took it over. And that's, that's just happenstance. They were able to come into the very peaceful Zuni peoples and the Hopis and just say, we're gonna sit here and that, that's too damn bad if you don't like it. And they, they, they enslaved them. And they, they, they also taught them re- reluctantly and sometimes illegally uh, how to handle, feed, and train horses and what tack uh, is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to do. Because the Indians had no knowledge of that whatsoever. And all Indian tack is in uh, the imitation that could be produced in the Indian camp with the materials available to the Indians of a Spanish saddle. So although naturally the Native Americans modified the forms, so for example, there are traditionally a uh, certain type of saddle that's only used by women. That's, that's, a, that's a Native American cultural thing but the saddle itself has a tree and it's built like a Spanish saddle. And it's built like the type of saddle that was used during the conquest with a high pommel and cattle. I think that's the great takeaway too, is is where the horse re-entered, came back, and then as more conquest from other groups became more successful, uh, so many points of entry that give us the horse today. Right. Well, our American horses are a unique blend, just like the horses of any other country are, because there is no such thing as a purebred horse, not even Arabs. All of them were either extracted from the wild at an, a very early date and bred by crossing animals 
that would never have encountered each other had it not been for human influence. So don't be kidding yourself. A lot of people seriously kid themselves about pure breeding and the, the supposed advantages of that. Um, there are no advantages of that that would matter to the animal, okay? You can breed yourself right into a corner by breeding quote-unquote purebreds. For us to do what is good for horses, to care about horses, not care about what the horse can do for you, he will do anything for you if you will just acknowledge what he is and work with that. And the same goes for the dressage horse that is badly collected and therefore begins to break down in the hawks. That is why they break down. And the same thing for the jumper, that they got to squeeze one more round out of him so they can complete their points for that season. This is not humane and it's unethical but it goes on every day. Well, what does this mean ultimately in terms of what we're breeding? Because that's where the survival of, this, of the species lies. Do you want to have viable horses in another hundred years? That's the question we're really looking at, and that's why we look at history, Jeremy. That is, it's not just because this is a cool story about the invasion of Mexico. History matters because without it, we can't interpret what's going on now. And if we are ignorant of history, we will not have the kind of perspective that we need in order to make good judgments, because we are the caretakers of this species. It has no other. So I'm no, I am no animal rights activist. I'm a horsewoman, and I, and I train horses, and I enjoy riding horses, and I think that horses should be used, and that oftentimes they're not used hard enough. But they also have to be used with knowledge. So from those 16 horses that landed with Cortez 500 years ago, the horse returns to the mainland of North America. And although those 16 horses eventually succumb to warfare and disease, their impact on the horse's return is remembered with this 500th anniversary. I'd like to thank Dr. Deb Bennett for providing her insight on this anniversary. I'd also like to thank Castle Plastics for helping us bring this podcast to you. Thank you for listening.